welcome to one of 200 episode 200 uh, of 200 that's also the title of this episode um i'm not gonna uh engage any creative faculties um to to add anything extra this week it's been a trip uh thank you so much first and foremost to everyone who's been listening um for the last four and a half years i think we hit five years uh in august and and we'll still be around um but yeah these last four and a half years have been fantastic i think we've met a lot of our goals we're in a really interesting spot now uh in in new zealand and and world politics uh it's almost a shame to go on hiatus uh, for for our weekly uh, current event stuff uh but there's a bunch of other stuff that needs to get done as well today i'm joined by everyone one two three four five there are seven of us uh on on the call this morning we've got josephine joining us Kia ora. Uh, we've got Bronco, one of uh, my co-founders. Kia ora, everyone. Uh, we've got Justine. Howdy, howdy. Uh, Paul. Hi, everyone. Mark. Kia ora, Koto. And my other co-founder, Philip. Morena. And you got me as well. Um, so, yeah, big, big roundtable um, this morning. I want to go over just a, a bunch of... Uh, Yes, current political environment stuff, uh, touching on a couple of things happening in current events that speak to those. Uh, But first of all, I just wanted to talk about uh, where we're at and what we've been doing. So we started, uh, you know, four and a half years ago because there was nothing that existed uh, in this this niche um, in terms of left political analysis. Uh, You had a range of inconsistent often reactionary, uh, if not outright toxic, commentators in this space, but no one really hitting all the notes that it felt like the moment required. Um, And at the same time, you had the increasing success of uh, groups like Jacobin and Novara in the US and the UK, respectively, who are managing to carve out a space on this. You had left-wing podcasts, um, you know, you had... Uh, what at the time was the dirtbag left. Uh, so, so a lot of the stuff has has fallen by the wayside now um, as different political movements have uh, sprung up and collapsed. But all three of us, me, Branko and Philip, had been involved in, in politics and journalism and, um, and the academy. And a common uh, thing that we saw was there was no consolidated consolidated left-wing analysis or view uh, within the left here. And a, a result of that commonly was that when activist groups or groups like uh, like ours uh, try to kick off, they would fracture and shatter um, as they struggled to find common values and goals. So nothing too lofty. We just wanted to be a space where that stuff could happen. And I think we've, by and large succeeded at that um, if people want to hear a left-wing analysis of something in current events they can listen to the podcast or they can catch one of their articles that's been one of the other goals is to provide a space for people to write that stuff to do long-form critique or writing or opinion that you don't usually see in our mainstream and establishment media and or, or here on our mainstream stations you know and the number of people who have come to me after the spin-off on newsroom will not take their piece uh, because it is too left-wing. 
despite you know publishing these outrageous um extremely radical right-wing pieces reasonably regularly as a as some kind of function of balance uh is astounding i think there's also a lot of space for people on the left to just be more outspoken um i, I think maybe to be i don't know if the word is crass but maybe tapping into some of uh what was previously found within the dirtbag left we're allowed to tell people to fuck off and you know a, a lot of what's happening in the current political climate is stuff that should fuck off and it creates strong emotions and stepping back and kind of taking a you know a quote-unquote objective stance about uh, about any of that stuff uh undermines any analysis of it because this is horrific shit um and we should be able to say that and be unashamed about it and not uh, kind of have to worry about people tone policing us and telling us to be civil. You know, there's a lot of space for that kind of stuff. Uh, and by and large, the electorate resonates with that. You know, they see this stuff happening. I, I, I think the media and politicians in general really struggle to understand that people have a stronger conception of politics and what is good for them than they've let on for the last 50 or 60 years and the constant calls from liberals and from the media and even from within political parties that people are voting against their own best interest um or that oh you know the the shit like people shouldn't be able to vote unless they pass an iq test or like a, a political knowledge test and that shit can fuck right off you know like if you're having discussions with working class people they know what's happening in their world because they have to to survive more often than not the people who don't understand shit are middle upper class liberals even like people who are on the radical right wing who are very well off have a better understanding of this stuff and just lie about it because they have specific goals that they want to get across the line uh but we've ended up in a situation where this there's this particular kind of media political business class that has lost any understanding of political economy. Uh, and one of our goals is to, has been to reintroduce that. Um, and we've seen shifts. We've seen shifts. And I, we're going to keep doing a lot of this stuff. Um, we're, we're still going to have episodes popping up and, and covering like very key events. Um, so keep an eye out for that. But work's not finished. And we, we need more people out there. We need more tools for people to access this stuff because we're in a political environment right now where things are getting pretty shaky. We're speaking just before the cast um, and Mark was saying, you know, people in the West see the rise of Trump as being like the beginning of the stuff, but it started a long time before that. You know, this is, there's a very long uh, tale uh, to the increasing uh, far-right reactionary um, communities that are now starting to show up uh, and and be a lot more vocal uh, in in public in New Zealand uh, currently. You know we've we've got this range of climate-related disasters. We've got a I'm not going to say ascendant, but a loud um, and uh, active far right um who is who has been very successful at hiding what they're doing behind uh anodyne culture war 
language um, that media and politicians seem to pass as background noise um, or seem to take at face value when there's obviously very different stuff going on here. Alongside that, we have a Labour Party in the majority who is refusing to do anything uh, to significantly change the characteristics of uh, and the function of a lot of the stuff in civic society that leaves people with nowhere else to turn except towards some of these these more reactionary groups. Uh, and we've seen that throughout the last few years uh, with the parliament protests, um, you know, there are, there are bad actors there, but there are just a lot of poor people um, who'd been, well, so, many of whom had like very fair uh, complaints about the state of their lives. That's going to happen more. And we've seen this happen again and again throughout history. And until our political and media class grasp that and begin adding that to their analyses of the way our politicians um, and the outrider kind of public relations uh, and right-wing activist group operate, we're not going to be able to tackle it effectively. Now, the latest stuff that's happened, uh, just to turn back towards current events and, and talk about like where we're at right now, uh, is that we have what's being called this policy bonfire from Chris Hipkins. Paul, do you want to weigh in on some of these uh, climate uh, policies that have been just wholesale removed, maybe some of the other policies that have, have been cut as well, um, and where that leaves us? Sure. Um, and maybe, I guess firstly, um, thanks, Carl and, and Philip and Branco for your work with the podcast. Like, um, just to echo some of the things that you were saying, I think it's served a really important role uh, in, in the kind of uh, media landscape here. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to see the new direction and I guess um, have a well-earned rest, uh, Kyle. Um, I know you put a lot of work into it personally as well, so thank you. Yeah, but current events, uh, the Hipkins policy bonfire. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked into a lot of the individual policies in a lot of detail. Um, one of the biggest ones that was thrown on the scrap heap was uh, what's called the clean car upgrade, um, about $560 million of uh, funding that was announced last year. And um, the budget from the Climate Emergency Response Fund was going to go towards basically subsidizing uh, low and middle income earners to switch out uh, their old, you know, petrol vehicle for an electric vehicle, essentially. But I, but I think what's sort of more important as to what this kind of speaks to, uh, the, the direction that Hipkins has taken here, speaks to the broader political direction uh, that, you know, that he's taking, that um, we're looking towards for an election year, and I guess the government's position on climate policy. Um, there's, there's so many interesting threads in here. Uh, firstly, um, I'll just I'll just rant a little bit about my thoughts on those, and I'm I'm keen to get uh, your guys' perspectives as well. But you know, Chris Hickens talked about oh, this doesn't actually show that the government aren't committed to climate action. It just shows that you know we're looking to uh, make uh, emissions reductions in a more cost efficient way, so we don't like put the costs onto families and 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 so on. Um, but uh, I just find that so ironic because the the overall trajectory for emissions has been increasing or or flat at best um, in the country for decades. Uh, and, you know, corporate profits have been rising, obviously. 
Um, and so the thing is, is that this is like pollution, climate pollution um, and, and other forms of pollution, uh, the externalities of that profit, right? They're, they're something that, you know, get costs that get put onto all of us um, typically um, is how the government distribute it uh, for, you know, big businesses and, and wealthy people uh, creaming it from the system. So we have to change that. We can't just ignore, uh, we, we can't keep going basically and ignore the costs. Like someone has to pay for it. I agree with Chris Hipkins that like ordinary people shouldn't pay for that. Um, we need someone else to. So that's, that's one of my um, reflections. The other one is a little bit more kind of technocratic, uh, I guess. So it's, it's, I find it really interesting. This leads on to the politics of the Green Party as well. The, the money that was uh, repurposed um, from some of these policies getting cancelled uh, has come from um, the Climate Emergency Response Fund. And last year, when Graham Robertson announced this in last year's budget, uh, he insinuated quite heavily that what this fund meant was that climate projects were now going to be revenue neutral, so the government wouldn't have to fund them from ordinary borrowing. Um, and, you know, they would also, he, he sort of implied that they, that climate projects would be limited to the amount of money in this fund, right? So I just find it really ironic that now the government is saying, oh, no, actually, we're going to cancel those projects and repurpose this money for like other things. And, you know, the, when the Climate Emergency Response Fund was announced, obviously that was a big like win for the Green Party. And I think like this whole thing uh, speaks to the Green Party's politics on climate issues. Um, and w which I think has been a huge failure, you know, for the last five years, they've been in government six years now. It's all been about writing the plan, setting the budget, setting the targets, doing all these things that don't actually reduce emissions, right? Like they're writing a bunch of stuff about how they're going to reduce emissions. And that's, you know, they keep saying things like, oh, once New Zealand Firth's out of the way, then we can actually reduce emissions. Or like, you know, once we get these plans in place, we'll actually be able to, um, you know, see emissions come down. Uh, and then all of a sudden priorities change and Chris Hipkins just cancels a bunch of the projects, which would sort of just like soft stuff around um, electric vehicles anyway. You know, and so their whole their whole strategy is just you know under under question. And and to finish on this point, and then I think this is kind of a funny one, um, but it's also very related, is that you know this week there's also been a lot of you know in, in relation to Chris Hipkins axing these policies, there's been a lot of talk about the Green Party's leverage, right? And you know it's a tale as old as time. You know, oh the Green Party, if they just were to form government with National, then you know. They would have leverage and they would be able to get shit done. And I just find it so hilarious. But actually, in response to that, I've been very pleased to see that some more mainstream commentators have started talking about the alternatives, actually, to the Green Party going into government with National. Because obviously, that would, you know, if it did happen, you know, I would never say never, but it would destroy the Green Party, right? It's a membership-based organization. There's um, some polling, interesting polling that Henry Cook uh, did some analysis on, which showed that, you know, Green Party members are overwhelmingly left-wing, I know, you know, having been involved in the Green Party for a number of years, I know that it would utterly destroy the party. So that's, it's, it's a non-starter. But yeah, I've been pleased to see that commentators have been talking about some alternatives to that, such as actually the Greens using their power in more creative and effective ways, you know, refusing ministerial positions and actually uh, holding the government to account on specific policies um, and sitting on the crossbenches and actually just saying, you're only going to get things passed uh, if we actually get the outcomes that we want um, and they clearly haven't done that um, and one of the biggest examples of that 
I think, is James Shaw just continuously saying that, you know, he's never going to give up on this on this issue. And that, that actually, you know, he's right. He is not going to give up uh, his position. And there doesn't seem to be anything that, like, the question that should be going to him is, like, what is it that would actually make you quit as climate minister? And there doesn't seem to be anything. So anyway, that's the end of my rant. I think it's all very, very interesting uh, and and kind of speaks to a wider, like, malaise around climate policy in this country and in, in the lead up to the election which you know um unless we get another global pandemic uh, climate um should probably be a much more prominent issue this election so yeah over to all of you guys as to what you think about all of that well i just wanted to add to your really salient and you know um thoughtful analysis paul um the actual just the polls as well which just um totally contradict um hipkin's entire narrative around you know the necessity of kind of going away from climate to return to bread and butter and like you know that reflecting kind of public sentiment um meanwhile on i think the same day one news releases a poll that says climate change is literally the top of um the public voters agenda like people want climate action and then you know we've just lived through like two climate related like catastrophes um just the timing of it is really impeccable i don't and it just makes me think like what will it take you know, like for um, lib- like liberals to take climate change seriously, and it doesn't seem that there's anything that could possibly happen to to actually make them confront um, capital and to properly um, address and you know do climate action. So I think that was like a really interesting kind of take, like just just like it kind of broke apart their own their own kind of propaganda around how you know they they are they legislate and govern by, you know, consensus and the public's consensus, and they just reflect that back. Um, That's clearly not the case, you know, and like that poll was a really stark reminder that it's a different kind of consensus that they're operating by, and it's definitely not the public's, (laughs) you know. Yeah, just to jump in, speaking of polls, it's interesting how the narrative has been constructed that the the reason for Hipkins' kind of resurgence in uh, popularity or success as Labour Party leader has been because he's been more more of a you know quote-unquote centrist whatever that means um which is you know a term that i like to problematize in the traditional sense as much as i can but i i think there's that's clearly not the case and the like preferred prime minister ratings that are being so like touted as a, a measure of his success like 40 percent of people don't give a preferred prime minister re- response to that so there's basically no kind of statistical value to those those metrics right as we've been saying for a, a very long time that's this is basically meaningless but it's yeah it's a, it's adorable that the kind of establishment media is so wedded to these metrics that they they need a presidential showdown they they want like a a fight for life in the in the ring of public opinion is like that's the the limit of their kind of public imaginary yeah but the the, the polling as as justine says like uh cost of living was the first like the most popular the most important thing uh in the most recent poll but then after that climate action was was there and then if asked specifically would you like the government and society to be doing more 54 56 percent or something of people said yes so you know specific specific policies kind of come and go but that's the direction that the public want us to be going in we'll see what the budget says but if if hipkins is jettisoning the the idea of moving towards like a you know climate resilient uh society then obviously that will be an an unpopular move yeah i just wanted to uh, talk about this issue as well um first of all i want to call out 
James Shaw. I mean, I see him at climate protests. Who is he protesting himself? His own ministry. He's the he's the minister of climate change, and he shows up to the protests. You know, is he protesting him? He should be protesting himself. Um, I'm looking at some of his policies in the last, you know, in his term as a climate change minister. Last year, he had the emissions reduction plan, which ended up being a huge handout to the most polluting industry in New Zealand, which is the dairy industry. It seems like it's very clear that, you know, the lobbyists got their way, the agri um, um, agri-industry lobbyists got their way in many of the climate plans that his ministry came up with. So the emissions reduction plan contained a 710 million handout for research to assist farmers to find ways to reduce their um, emissions. But this is this was the single biggest part of the plan. And uh, this 710 million came out of the emissions trading scheme, which is a fund that farmers have been exempted from contributing to. So a lot of other industries are, you know, are supposed to contribute to it. Farmers have been, you know, exempted from it and now they're getting a big handout from it. So it's like James Shaw has been hugely ineffective as a minister there and he has basically sold out to the industries and he's part of the problem. And um, yeah, so uh, Greens really needs to have a look at, you know, what what they should do in the future to be effective uh, um, advocates for climate change. The left has nowhere to go at the moment um, for a solid climate plan. And like, why aren't they at, um, sort of advocating things like universal and free uh, public transportation, which would also address um, cost of living to some extent? So I will just uh, leave it at that. But, um, I guess so raises a question kind of, kind of more generally uh, around the effectiveness of... I'm going to bundle left and climate stuff um, into like a a political space here because I think that's fair and, and useful and probably true in the New Zealand context. If the Greens are not doing this effectively, um, if, if their strategy is ineffective, if they're not really carrying the torch for left climate solutions. What is the kind of way forward uh, in New Zealand for left electoralism? Yeah, I opened that one up to, to everyone to, to have a hit at. And yeah, in reference to kind of where we're at right now. Can I just jump in on that one? Um, I'll, I'll be brief because there's other people that haven't spoken yet. But um, in, in my view, uh, the, the strategy can basically be boiled down to grounding your politics in relationships with elites, which is like what James Shaw does um, and, and others in the Greens. Um, you know, basically, let's cozy up to Labour, let's build our political relationships with them, and that's how we'll get our favours. And then obviously, as Hipkins' announcement proved, that, you know, doesn't eventuate, um, because when it's convenient, they'll just throw it away, and, and then nothing will happen. There's no consequences for that uh, politically for Hipkins anyway. So so that's that's that strategy, and I think the, the antidote to that is grounding your politics in um, campaigning and actually winning over the public to your positions um, that, that you hold and they can see that you earnestly hold and, and support um, and, and building, you know, as, as an electoral strategy anyway, that is the, the alternative to that. Um, Philip's saying in the chat that I don't have to be so polite uh, in this forum. <laughs> Sorry, Philip, it's just my... Um, 
I don't know. It's, it's the it's the way that I go. Maybe I'm too used to being in Green Party meetings. Yeah. So so I think it can kind of be boiled down to those two things. And like we've seen the other, you know, the the good version um, of that of those two be exercised quite well by you know different actors in in Parliament from a range of parties. Actually, you know, some from the Greens, but also from Party Māori and, and others, where they've actually campaigned um, and won, you know. The public's favor on particular issues and that's been more effective actually that in sh at shifting the government's position uh on things than what just greasing up to um you know the power brokers and labor have so yeah that's my view on it anyway yeah i want to um throw back to some of the previous discussions we've had here as well um particularly with luke savage in canada when we talked about the ndp over there and their relationship with the liberals um and more broadly as well with the Scottish Green Party and the way in which the major parties just create a win-win situation for themselves by going into government with a minor left-wing party. In both of those international contexts, when something, when a policy worked well and was publicly popular uh, and was implemented, the people who got the political win, the electoral win, was the major party because they controlled the information flows on it um, and they were the ones who did it as the leaders of the country. For the Scottish Greens, it fucked them up. Um, for the NDP, they're just eternal second runners-up um, and have been for uh, a decade or more. The same is happening here in New Zealand, except because the Greens have not really offered anything uh, particularly impactful, uh, instead trying to work towards building what they call a framework uh, for delivery. It's all been thrown out. Um, and... Labour get to look strong and like they're refocusing. Um, you know, again, the major party is able to control the narrative because that's how the political economy works um, in Parliament and in the parliamentary precinct. Uh, and the Greens, they've made a little bit of a huff about it, but this should really be like a radicalization moment for, for the party. They should be all, I'm trying to think of a non-violent, all guns firing, but it's not going to happen. They should just be hauling labor over the coals here uh, and really using this as a diversion uh, point from a labor greens platform because it doesn't exist. It's not real. Um, it was all kayfabe. Uh, and if the greens don't take a stand on this, um, especially coming into campaign season, they're going to they're going to see that um, that vote fall, I think. Bronco. Electoral stuff, you know, I think, uh, you know, I look at some of the stuff that's happened overseas and, and, and what is the basis of, of some of the limited success that we've seen? It's, it's people getting involved. It's um, people who, you know, like, like us on this podcast or people listening who are looking around at the things that are happening in the world, in this country, and they say no one's seems to be representing the things that I care about and giving voice to the things that I think need to happen. Um, and they decide to, to, you know, basically do it themselves. Um, that's the only way it's ever happened. Um, you know, it's, it's relatively easy, uh, way easier than it is in other countries to start a political party in New Zealand if you really wanted to, to try and uh, present some sort of uh, a left challenge to the to the options that exist right now. You can also, you know, get involved in these parties themselves. There's, right now there's a bit of a debate happening, you know, similar to what we've seen in other countries, you know, is, is 
the way forward to you know get more involved in say the greens um and try and push them to the left is is the way forward to to try and do what other groups have done say the uk and the united states you know groups like momentum and and uh and, and the democratic socialists of america who try and sort of make inroads into a major party like labor to try and transform it um i don't know these are all i think viable options but 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 the fundamental uh, uh, element of them is that is that people have to to stand up and get involved and you know uh, this podcast has been one attempt to to try and do that you know in the media space but it's very one very small cog in the overall machine and what it requires is you know we we try and uh, uh, create some sort of vehicle here for people to be able to look at events in the world events in New Zealand and to sort of have a a and we try and guide people towards an analysis of what's happening so they're better informed and so they're able to. To, to better act um, uh, in the real world uh, based on what they're seeing. Um, and so that's that's one ingredient. Uh, but, you know, the second part of that is, is what I just said, it's to, it's to act in the real world. And so, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the day, whether you get involved in electoral efforts, which is which is great, whether you want to get involved to, you know, change political party or, or, or make your own party, um, uh, uh, the main thing is that that uh, uh, you you have to uh, present some sort of actual real world pressure on the people in power, and I think uh, you know we're seeing bits of that because I think people are so angry and frustrated uh, and uh, disappointed and and to some extent um, even dispirited by what is going on by by the the lack of action about all these things that we've talked about on this uh, podcast today and in you know every 199 other episodes. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be more of that. Hopefully there'll be more strikes. There'll be more protests, uh, and not just against, you know, the quote unquote bad people, but, but also against, you know, the people who are ostensibly meant to be, uh, our allies. And, you know, I, one other thing I'd stress is that, uh, we touched on a little bit here, you know, Philip mentioned some of the polling around this. I mean, the positions that the, the left in New Zealand and in the UK, in the United States, all over the world, the positions that we hold and that we historically have um, always put forward are very popular. Um, you know, it, it's a matter of communicating them to people because people have been fed so much lies and propaganda uh, about you know what exactly you know being on the left is and and and, and about various left-wing policies of people, you know, uh, it takes a little bit of time to kind of condition or, or rather to, to move people away from that conditioning. But ultimately, you know, most people, if you talk to them in, in real life, they want, uh, you know, people who are ultra rich to be taxed. They want more public investment in things like healthcare and education. They want workers to be paid a decent, you know, wage. Uh, they want climate change to be to be taken care of. They don't want to see people and families sleeping in the streets and in cars. Um, they they want to be able to afford their mortgages. These are all very basic things that touch everyone's lives. Um, and if we just keep talking about this stuff, you know, and and and, and organizing around this stuff, having conversations in our private lives, and you know, with people. In positions of power about this uh all of that you know it's not one single thing that's going to change it but but we just have to keep persisting and so i hope you know while we go on this hiatus we'll be back eventually while we go on this hiatus hopefully people that, that have enjoyed some of the stuff that we talked about here and some of our analysis um you know if you if you're not involved in some way whatever you know whether it's your workplace or your you know your, your a local union or or what any any sort of political campaign that you've thought about an activist campaign you know maybe maybe this will be the thing that spurs you to sort of 
dip your feet in the water and get involved. That's what that's what I hope will happen uh, uh, while we're uh, having a, a, bit of, a bit of a break here. Yeah, that's actually our, our overall goal by going on hiatus, that people just get so thirsty for takes that they just have to go out and create them themselves. Man, I, I'm really itching to do something radical. Oh, usually, I, usually I just go and t- turn on the 1 or 200 podcast and listen to that, and that, that scratches that itch. But uh, now I'm going to have to go and really do something. I mean, the, the other part of that is that our political opponents are actively doing this stuff. They're actively organizing they're actively trying to destroy spaces in which community organizing can occur. Um, we're seeing that in Auckland right now um, with the mayor, Wayne Brown, trying to defund libraries and galleries and recreation centers. It's it's ludicrous and it's dangerous. Um, and it are the, it's these kinds of things, and I've said as much uh, online as well, that provide the base work for fascism. Um, and I, I'm not someone who uses that word um, lightly. Um, I, I try to push back against fascism being used um, for any neoliberal uh, kind of policy because I think that it does dilute it to some extent, and it means that we are not, we're, you know, when Nazis are actually not marching the street as they did in Melbourne yesterday, and and you want to call it fascism, people are like, oh, you mean like, you know, the National Party? No, I don't mean like that. But there is an historical context here. If people do not have community, if people do not have the services, the public services that they need to effectively operate within society when someone comes along and says we'll take care of you we'll, we'll make like a, a soup kitchen right um just come and see Kyle with us a little bit uh, later on the conditions for that are becoming more and more present and the more and more desperate people get the more likely that is to happen we saw this happening what less than a decade ago um Philip correct me if I'm wrong here um, and we did discuss this I think we have discussed this previously, but in Greece with the Golden Dawn Party, the reason that they were so successful, they're, they're a neo-Nazi party, by the way, for um, anyone who is unfamiliar with them. The, one of the major reasons they were so successful was because they'd go into these areas where people were starving, where infrastructure was collapsing, and they start work projects and they'd feed people. They were doing the stuff that is often talked about as being left populism. They were seeing to the needs of a community and then using that as the vehicle for Nazism. And, and we cannot allow that set of conditions to develop here um, or, you know, globally. And the way to ensure that it doesn't is to fund the stuff. Like it, 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 it sounds like it's too simple, but it, it really is. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of to try to kaleidoscope in there, but I really wanted to... Um respond to this I talk about um, electoralism because I think that there's a lot of anxiety and angst and um, kind of frustration that I see just talking to people every day um, and several of you touched on this 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 disconnect between what people actually think and feel about politics in their day-to-day lives and the projection of it or you know we sometimes use the term kayfabe from from wrestling which I think really encapsulates what's going on so well. But I think that there's a, what I see, I guess, kind of missing from a lot of discussions or from a kind of awareness is 
around the the actual construct of the the parliamentary system um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and how limited it is, and the kind of the actual possibilities for action within electoralism, I don't think are often recognised by people broadly on the left, and we 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 see people getting very very frustrated with the Ardern government and now Hipkins kind of bread and butter and all the um, all the nonsense and rhetoric around that um, or this idea that the, um, the what the median voter likes being the kind of the way that policy is sort of communicated to the public and what's missing from all of that is this this historical grounding of like why why is the possibility for action of this government that has like an unprecedented majority in parliament can basically do what they want they can vote for anything they can put their hands up in the house and they have like labor has a majority they can change the legislation in so many different directions but what what's constraining that is this this construct um we sometimes call it neoliberalism public finance act and all of these actual machinery of government type things that were put in place to kind of lock the the um the decision making capability of politicians the the legislative changes the the possibility for funding things all kind of squeezing it down to this this very particular um, very narrow um, scope and without I think a strategy for transforming that without a strategy for say changing the balance of um, of public debt and and the attitudinal changes and the public service changes that go along with that. Um, I just I don't see you know big opportunities for left electoralism. Um, it just becomes a kind of like a um, a frustrated desire because what you know um, and I think this is the sort of dilemma for say the James Shaw um, and and all of his supporters and um, and you know there's a lot of liberals and Labour voters who really like James Shaw um, and who get I've seen them getting very frustrated in public because. They see this really um, quite intense reaction and um, frustration with him from Green Party people um, and from people on the left more broadly. And, and they're like, why are you doing this? James Shaw is doing like the best thing for the Green Party. And, um, and I think, yeah, this really does come down to that. Like, what, what can you actually do when, you are, when you're a minister in this government, when you can't really control public finance, when you can't really change those sort of settings where you will get absolutely destroyed and your office will be flooded with a tsunami of lobbyists and business feedback and, and spamming like select committees with 80,000 sort of astroturfed fake submissions, basically saying you cannot have more than like sort of 30% of GDP public debt. You can't, there are just things you can't do in this country. And so the, the, for left electoralism, I think the question is like, what is the strategy? How do the how do the parties in parliament actually go about changing that and developing that? And I think that's a different question from solving some of these big social problems. But um, and it's kind of annoying and technocratic, and um, <laughs> I really dislike even having to think about it. But I just I don't really see the possibilities for action within electoralism because of that, unless the strategy is about you know making those tweaks and changes and reversing those reforms. Anyway, that's just sort of my my little perspective on that. Um, and I know, I know I always go back to Rogenomics as like my explanation for things, but I think in this case, it's like, it's about you know, what, what can left governments do? And the answer is at the moment, very, very little.
and so really that you know changing that has to be part of the strategy i uh, yeah um i just want to add on to that like you know what is the strategy um i have been looking at our you know the processes that happen in governance and how they've all been corrupted by the interests of the powerful um like at every single stage of governance including policy making right now um it's been you know the governance system has been hollowed out and the interests of of the corporations and the wealthy have uh, you know been deeply entrenched into every single process of governance um looking looking at the consultancies and how embedded they are in government for example even in policy making a lot of the policies are just now um what do you say outsourced into companies like um KPMG and Deloitte you know who's consult who are consulting also from some of the most polluting some of the most profiteering you know corporations in this country so um i think the left has also to a great extent um especially parties like the green party as well as a labor party have lost sight of the conflicting interests between the poor and the working class and those of the wealthy and this is a very key thing that we need to come back to um in order for making gains uh, for the poor and the working class people we have to act actively you know we have to actively confront and challenge um the interests of uh of the wealthy and that's not really happening another thing that i'm seeing you know is like in my time observing politics in new zealand labor party you know they're um if they make promises to the working class they have no qualms breaking those pro promises you know but when they make a promise to the right they will make sure under all conditions that the promise is met like we are really um expendable for them but they know where you know the power lies like who's influencing media for example in new zealand um you know the wealthy have a greater say um over here it's 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 it come it's it's coming down to the you know the dominant ideology that drives a country like new zealand the idea that capitalism is the solution for example everyone uh, more or less believes in that idea so that's a problem there i'm reading this book called talking about uh the economy to my daughter by yanis varfakis and he talks about how um you know the ideology of capitalism is simply providing um an an explanation and a justification for why you know um one child is born into a situation where they don't even have food whereas you know you my daughter you have all the comforts in life and ideology of capitalism and neoliberalism is providing a very perverse and distorted but it's providing a justification for it that we all live with and take for granted and we need to fight against it and that's where i see you know this uh, this show uh, one of 200 and you know many of us are trying to make an impact there in changing um that dominant understanding that these things are just the way things are we can't change them no we can and the and the way to do it is to you know um actively confront the ideology of neoliberalism and capitalism and confront it and you know um so empowering 
the voices that have been marginalized, for example, involves the active disempowerment of the powerful. And there's no compromise. So there's no other way in that. We need to pick a side and we need to demand that politicians also pick a side. You can't put your, you know, one leg in in the working class boat and the other one in the boat of the ruling class. You got to pick a side and this should be a baseline for our uh, politics and our organizing. Oh, uh, yeah, I could. I mean, I just completely agree with every, what everyone's saying. And I just want to harken back to what um, Branko said, though, um, just about like developing those um, counter hegemonic forces, right, um, that are able to challenge all the things that we talk about. And, you know, the, the show being one note of that in the New Zealand left. I was really excited to be at the teacher's strike the other day with 9000 educators uh, marching in Auckland, you know, basically against I mean, really, it is a confrontation with that entire framework, um, even though it might not understand itself as such. And I think as, you know, the workers become more militant and hopefully become more class conscious, um, these kinds of uh, talking points will develop and become, you know, because I think like there is a general anger and there is a general um kind of notion that things are wrong and yeah we support these nice things that we want but i don't think we really understand power right and how it works and i think that that's what these kind of confrontations with workers confronting um you know the government but also capital really teaches people and i so i was really excited yeah i was really excited by the teacher strike and i was also really excited to see like the widespread public support because it's like these yeah that was that was awesome you know like i think it's i think like that has i haven't seen this level of public support for, for striking teachers people also tend to support you know like nurses i think nurses get off easy no like people really the public really supports nurses but teachers you if they're inconvenient you know people are inconvenienced by striking teachers so to see yeah this level of um public support for teachers was really heartwarming to me and off the back of um the climate strike as well a couple weeks back before that and then in the yeah like some really exciting things actually happening in the new zealand left so i think also just like let's keep going <laughs> let's get our energy back because during covid we kind of disappeared which made a lot of sense because we cared about one another and wanted to keep each other safe the right didn't have you know that um same commitment <laughs> to humanity and so they've kind of been able to to have the stage of politics for quite a, a while and so i'm really hopeful that now that the pandemic's receded slightly that we will see the left come back a bit and 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 you know grow in strength um because otherwise it is quite frightful and i i kind of always say i always say to people is like we need to be we need to develop and um you know grow it we need to we need to focus on power and growing our power because we can't expect we're not they're not going to listen to us without power we it's just you know we can be right we are right we all know that we're correct uh, that's not going to make a difference we need the power to translate that into reality <laughs> yeah on the back of um what both josephine and, and justine have um mentioned there uh, i want to take us um to talk about another really key part of the current political environment um and media environment and activist environment and organized environment and yada 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 which is heavily tied to the split between the powerful and those without power and the way that electoral politics and the media play to that uh, without implementation, without follow through. And I think the reason why, and it'll become very clear um, as I kind of go into this, um, why this might be considered in some spaces to be controversial. Um, but I think the reason why a lot of 
where we're at right now is a problem is because of the choices made by people with decision-making power. When all these polls that have been mentioned previously around, hey, we want climate uh, action, hey, we, we, you know, we want more tax on the very wealthy, um, we want the government to do more, the electorate is already there. And we've, we've said this again and again um, over the course of one of 200. It said this again and again. When you poll the public effectively, by and large, they are overwhelmingly progressive, especially compared to people in power. But what we've had, and especially from ostensibly left uh, political parties like Labour, like the Democrats um, in the States, is, you know, what has been called um, virtue signaling um, by the right, although although all their conceptions, all the reactionary right-wing conceptions of this are fucked, by the way, um, but there is a performativeness to it. There's a, I call it uh, political branding or issues branding, um, where label will come in and say, yes, we are green. Now, people also call it stuff like greenwashing or um, redwashing or, or whatever else you want to um, wash it with, um, queerwashing, uh, rainbowwashing. And they will use this language they will make overtures uh, to minority groups um, or to you know swathes of the electorate uh, that they need the votes of because those people are, are considered to be uh, natural voters um, and inverted commas for those parties, and then nothing will happen. And this has happened again and again, year on year, from our our kind of left-wing parties, um, especially from Labour, especially from the Greens, where they've made these mouth sounds about who they support and whose side they are on, and they're just, as far as outcome is concerned, not. And what it's led to is this horrific political environment where now being able to just blather out um, things about cancel culture and wokeness get top headlines become a a coded way of referring to anything that uh whichever group doesn't like that and this is incredibly key resonates with large parts of society because they have seen this mechanism occurring they have seen the labor party say they're going to uh, have climate as their nuclear moment and do fuck all. So when someone says they're just being woke, people are like, oh yeah, they kind of are, you know. Um, they, they kind of are just being performative. They kind of are just signaling to us. They're not actually doing anything. And when we're in an environment where those kind of arguments can be made, where that kind of prestidigitation, like stage magic, can happen where terms like woke and cancel culture can be used wholesale to describe a, a, an enormous range of stuff where, when challenged about it, no right-wing commentator can give an effective definition of what it even means because they know how they're using it mechanically and they can't describe that publicly without giving the game away. We are creating an environment where really bad shit can be lumped in alongside that resonance 
and got and pushed over the line. And in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we are seeing that in regards to things like co-governance, where there is this incredibly racist uh, undercurrent to it, um, to, to the pushback on it, where there's incredibly reactionary language being used by people in parliament like David Seymour um, to call it apartheid, which is just absolutely ludicrous. I, I want to be very clear about that. And uh, mobilizing and organizing incredibly right-wing elements, um, incredibly racist elements, while palming palming it off as just being anti-woke or and any uh, challenge to it as being cancel culture without understanding at a societal level how those mechanisms are operating, we're going to see this getting a lot worse. And I referenced Australia and um, what's happening in Melbourne yesterday. The same thing is happening in the trans-exclusionary radical fem- uh, feminist space, the TERF space, where this emotive argument is... Literally, you know, we, we saw this yesterday, literally being used as a vehicle for Nazism. Uh, so yesterday there were people marching down the street at the front of this march, uh, Sikh Highland. And I, I we, we knew, like everyone here knew that these elements were connected. You know, this is well established. There have been investigations showing how these people are connected to each other, how the far right uh, and the extreme Christian right are connected to the anti-trans movement. And at at large, though, at at large in the political and media space, no one has, like, there's been very little acceptance of that. And so you still get these very, like, um, standing back from it, both sides, uh, pieces running under top headlines um and our mainstream and established media it should be overwhelmingly clear now and anyone who's not accepting this is not on our side that these things are linked and that this is how that mechanism works so we're in that this is the current environment what what do you think we can do about this or how do you think this operates or whatever else you want to add uh philip you've got your hand up uh have you heard of left populism i hear it's i hear it's awesome um yeah honestly like this is a you know we've we've talked about this a bunch of times i have a obviously a different conception of uh freedom of expression or freedom of speech or whatever but i would say that like this is the like the true conception of freedom of expression should include like the freedom of the citizenry to express themselves in a way that power is uncomfortable with right so in that in that sense i think that like the autocratic kind of didactic method through which for example like the granny herald and stuff and you know the mouthpieces of power communicate to us the the values of their property (laughs) which is essentially what they're there for like that to me that's like a, a relevant kind of part of this conversation and i think as 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 kind of a left uh incipient kind of left energy that's what we should be clinging on to like to me that's a very powerful kind of um energetic force that can create uh momentum no no pun intended i'm not trying to link this to corbin but that that is a that is a thing i think that like we maybe are missing out on right now and it, it feels too uh too kind of self-limiting and and kind of tone tone policing i suppose to presuppose that our kind of 
uh, presuppositions about the way that people communicate are going to be everybody's. But in that, in the same sense, I I don't disagree with anything you said, Kyle. Like I totally agree. There needs to be like pushback a- against any kind of uh, created incipient fascist like elements. But that doesn't have to be on the level of like legality. I think that's where like some of the kind of lib left have got confused is that there should be some kind of like authority that cracks down on these people. No, you are the authority. Like the working class is the authority. We should be like outnumbering and outgunning them on the level of the streets. Like that's where you that's where you beat the fascists. You don't beat them in in the courts. Can I just like, interject? That's not for how it works. Because I just in. want to tell a story of like in the eighties, the French left used to patrol the streets of Paris wearing red with baseball bats, and I I think they were called something like the Red Brigade, but it was in front French. So if you Google that, it's a different thing. Um, but uh, they yeah they just beat the shit. <laughs> <laughs> also then, they were they were hot as hell as well they I'm were hot saying. as hell their fashion was bang just on just fucking saying just giving people some ideas uh you don't need to rely on the cops <laughs> that's all i want to say um yeah i just want to say that the cops are perhaps the more right-wing fascist force in this country um just yesterday i was reading the report about how cops in new zealand are you know, illegally profiling and photographing Maori youth. Um, we're talking about a country that mass incarcerates Maori. We're, we're, we're talking about a country that is systematically violent towards um, indigenous and Pacifica peoples living here. Um, you know, the, the difference in the life expectancy. So I'm actually more interested in holding the system to account. Like those in power, they are continuing uh, a colonial um, sort of um, based um, system, economic system, uh, justice system, and so forth. So, yeah, we're talking about overrepresentation of Maori in um, in homelessness and poverty. So, if we are actually anti-fascist, we should be really against the you know the violence that's coming from the system, the status quo as it stands, and. Um, yeah, and you know, I can see the New Zealand police have, you know, have now changed their name with adding a Maori name to it, Nga Pirihimana, um, and they continue to, you know, commit police violence on a daily basis in brown neighborhoods. They continue to be like an occupying settler force that, you know, um, disciplines the unruly um, natives. So yeah, we we need to hold the system to account more more actively uh, while we are also paying attention to the you know the right wing um uh, that is outside of power and within the communities we should have a greater uh, focus on uh, those who hold power and how they are in fact the source of this sort of violence um on people who have been historically uh, oppressed and increasingly more and more um Pākehā are becoming um, alienated and becoming disenfranchised and poor. And so we we must think about organizing in solidarity for a system that goes beyond the kind of solutions that are being offered in the name of, for example, co-governance. I think that these solutions don't go far enough. They are operating. They're, you know, the solutions being provided are within the framework of neoliberal capitalism. They are forcing Māori to become part of a neoliberal capitalism 
capital system and become business entities or capitalists or so forth. And, you know, inherently, this system is going to create poverty. It's going to create, maintain housing insecurity. We must think, think about systems where we decommodify the basic needs of humanity, including housing, health, um, education and so forth and none of the solutions being offered by by labor for example go that far they're talking about producing you know uh, little um, silos within a neoliberal capitalist system which is never going to work in terms of liberating uh, our people so we need to go beyond above and beyond and we need to have left-wing critiques of these sorts of um, solutions that don't go far enough. And if we don't have such left-wing critiques, the right will take that space as we are seeing uh, today. So yeah, that's what I wanted to add. And um, I might have to leave a bit early today. So I uh, just wanted to say that as well, but I just wanna also just to pass on my greetings to the show and also say, um, that it is uh, election year, so we must not go into high address and we must continue um, raising our voices uh, about these issues. Thank you. At the end of the day, the, the far right uh, works by uh, creating uh, uh, boogeymen and, and nemeses and scapegoats uh, that have very little to do with what is actually causing mayhem and problems in people's lives, but uh, it makes it gives an object of hate and uh, it allows people to sort of divert their anger from the, the people that Josephine is talking about, you know, the people in power, the people who are the wealth of a country and who control uh, the political institutions of a country and, and, and transfer them to, to someone weak, someone who, um, without anyone standing up for them, you know, is very vulnerable to to attack. And in this case, you know, they, they've now settled on the <clears throat> sit on the uh, the trans movement excuse me uh uh but before that you know it's always a parade of of other uh scapegoats you know we we saw muslims of course uh in the most of the decades of the century so far you know before that we've had jews we've had um lgbtq people more broadly um and you know you can you can go down the list of basically every marginalized group in history um and you know i, I think josephine is right what what uh what we the way to respond to this is is definitely the stuff that people have talked about. You know, you don't want to give these people any uh, room on the streets to sort of uh, 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 to spout their hate and to intimidate people. But at the end of the day, um, uh, these people have to be out organized, uh, and 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 we have to show people that actually know that the the problems in your life are not to do with whether a trans person tries to, to live a, have a basic existence with, with dignity and, and, and you know, uh, uh, fundamental rights. It's not to do with whether Muslims are, you know, able to go through an airport without being, uh, 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 you know, intimidated and, and discriminated against. It's, it's about, you know, challenging the people who own the, the wealth and power in society and, and re redistributing that wealth to the benefit of everyone so that, you know, we have a <laughs> functional uh, society. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to reiterate what, what we talked about earlier in this, in this podcast, you know, while we're on hiatus, you know, try and, and get involved in some way, whether you go to a protest for the first time or for the first time in a while, whether you um, get involved in some sort of uh, campaign, uh, whether you want to join a political party, whatever, uh, whether you want to just do a simple thing and, 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 write or call your local MP and, and yell at them about something that that also works. I mean, that that has uh, has worked, you know, in some immigration cases just in the last um, uh, little while, um, you know, that that is going to be the way that 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 the far right is defeated uh, in the same way that, you know, um, 
uh, any uh, uh, noxious ideology has, has been defeated. So uh, yeah, let's let's keep that in mind. It's it's all about um, putting out a different narrative and and making sure that people aren't directed into these uh, uh, ridiculous pathways of hey, you know. And actually, one of the things I, I I'm glad about this show is that we've been able to have um, sort of a, a, a sometimes contentious but good debate about. Um, you know, how to interpret some of these events that have royal New Zealand in the last little while, including some of the anti-vax stuff, where, you know, the, the solution is not to, I think, go down the pathway of um, political polarization that we've seen in the United States, where, you know, we sort of everything gets coded into, you know, you, there's a, a every event, you know, has, has a simple interpretation of good and bad. Uh, and, and, you know, we can understand and we can look at some of these movements and we can say, hey, some of these people without realizing are being drawn into a wave of hate and we can actually draw them out, you know, by, by offering them a different interpretation of what's going wrong in their lives. I think that, that uh, we've talked about some of that in this podcast when it comes to some of these, um, these anti-vax movements. And so, I, you know, I think uh, uh, keeping that in mind is, is, is key. We don't want to sort of go into this uh, into this uh, U.S. style culture war, you know that that, that kind of um, uh, cleaves everything into 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 two and sort of splits splits uh, working people up. We've been we've been zooming out um, over the course of of this um, discussion so far, um, and I'll, I'll I'll pivot us again um, just while Josephine is still here because I, I think she'll have something to add um, on this as well. Something that we have been struggling to grapple with. Um, at one of 200 um, and and just in the wider New Zealand uh, political space is the lack of consistent international relations discussion um, and talking about uh, where where Aotearoa New Zealand uh, exists within the world um, what role do we play uh, and talking about I, I, again and you know this has been happening even in in mainstream discussions how does New Zealand have an independent foreign policy? We are so far from that point. I, I want to make that, that very clear. We've been uh, slowly um, realigning uh, with Western uh, hegemony. Um, we've, we've gone over this multiple times on the podcast about the ways in which we've been locking ourselves uh, into uh, continued economic, military, international relations uh, modes uh, with the US in particular. But once again, there have been multiple inflection points um, over the last few years. Um, there are these flashpoints occurring uh, where the role of New Zealand, it feels like it shouldn't be to align with these uh, superpowers. And I think maybe this is my one of my regrets um, of, of, our, of the time I've been working on this project is that we haven't been able to forefront the Pacific as much as I would have wanted. We've ended up talking about d domestic politics a lot more because of the events that have been occurring um, over the last few years. Um, that's what's dominated current events discussion. Um, we've, we've definitely had some incredible guests uh, talking about how New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand government relates to the Pacific and what the future of that could and should look like. But it really feels like with the incre like incredibly increased attention of the US um, in our geopolitics um, in relation to, to China in particular, um, and with the 
just incredibly quickly escalating rhetoric coming out of the Australian media and political functions. It's time that there was someone actually standing up for Pacific here um, that has tabs on and networks with Western hegemony to an extent that a lot of Pacific nations don't get to have. And we we do start to see a truly independent uh, foreign policy here uh, once again, because the discussions are so dire um, on social media and in our media. There are so few people who seem to understand historical precedent just as a baseline. And it's honestly embarrassing to, to watch, to have seen us fall to this level even just over the last decade. Yeah, uh, Josephine, you, you don't have much longer in the discussion, so I wanted to hand to you immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's a very important topic, um, for New Zealand foreign policy and how that uh, you know relates to leftism, um, in my view, is a, is a very important thing to consider. Um, well, a few years ago, I, I went to Australia and I, I attended a conference there and um, it was called the the Asia-Pacific um, Conference. And now they've changed the name to Indo-Pacific to... I've it there as well. Because this is one of those like inflection points, right? Is this move from uh, Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific. And it's it's so barefaced. Yeah. Um, but this was a few years ago, I think 2019 or something. And... Um, one of the one of the speeches was by um, Australia's foremost political sort of academic who comments on the media, and then he made a presentation just to say that um, you know ch- China is dangerous, and you know basically his uh, conclusion was U.S. hegemony or U.S. imperialism is the better, uh, and the and and Western imperialism is the um, what do you say is the better imperialism. It's the one that is you know basically this repeating the tropes of benevolent you know empire and uh after the the um the speech i got up and i asked him a question like do you realize that we are sitting on stolen land where genocide took place as a result of western imperialism and you have the nerve to sit here where you know aboriginal people were subjected to systematic genocide and to say that this imperialism is is better than something that you know we don't even know about over here what that would look like if china were to become the you know major power in the world so you know we know the history of western imperialism and we you're sitting at a asia pacific conference with people from regions that have been you know at the receiving end of the worst impacts of colonialism and the thing is colonialism hasn't ended we're living in a neo-colonial era and you know the neo-colonial era is still dominated by u.s hegemony through the u.s dollar and through the fact that you know we have a global capitalist um what do you say a, a market a financial market and you know the shareholders of of this a lot of them sit in the west so it's still a, a western dominated world in terms of um you know the economic aspect of it so no we we can't claim to be leftists and support U.S. hegemony, especially considering the number of times they have violated human rights, you know, as well as international law since the Second World War. And this idea of, um, 
NATO being a defensive alliance, for example, it really completely erases the histories of the people within New Zealand, right? Like um, New Zealand government claims to be an inclusive and uh, multicultural, or uh, what do you say, government. But when you think about it, like um, the current rhetoric around foreign policy, especially in relation to Ukraine and NATO, um, it says that New Zealand stands for international uh, law and so forth. And, you know, yesterday I was having a discussion with one of my friends who came here, who was from Iraq and came here from Iraq. And she just says it completely erases my my people's history to, to say this without having uh, any understanding about the level of double standard and hypocrisy um, that is contained in that word. So, yeah, so that's just what I want to say. New Zealand does not have a independent foreign policy. And sadly, after Chris Hipkins has come into power, we are seeing a hardening of the pro-Western um, sort of stance that Jacinda Ardern, ironically, has taken initiative to to be part of. So yeah, it doesn't seem to be going in the right way with AUK US and all that. Um, and New Zealand uh, trying to increase, for example, its defense spending, rather than thinking about building a world that's based on peace. So yeah, not looking good. Uh, but we need more voices that are actually sensible and to say that, you know, uh, most of the violence in the world happened that happened after the Second World War is derived from the United States foreign policy that doesn't um, recognize the sovereignty of any country in the global south. So, um, yeah, I'll just end on that note. Yeah, a hundred percent, and I, I I agree with everything that you've just you just said. Like this is, I think this is one of the problems is that there hasn't been uh, the kind of comfort with expressing these views on the new zealand left like the problem is the spin-off isn't going to air these takes right that's so that's as that's as left as we get comfortably in new zealand so there's a kind of a gaping uh space that we you know tried to fill four and a half years ago and i'm pretty proud of what we've managed to achieve but yeah especially when it comes to foreign policy like there's a there's a kind of a a level of hypocrisy that we get where even you know center left liberals in new zealand won't have consistent takes when it comes to overseas understanding of imperialism for example and that's just not for some reason it's not something that's acceptable to talk about so like the icc the international criminal court issued an arrest warrant for putin and the children's rights commissioner i've forgotten her name sorry it's not on the top of my tongue they, it's it's interesting that that you know that's the that's the line that they've drawn they've they've picked a very clear like a thing that's very legalistically defendable which is you know that is absolutely on the on the books in terms of you can claim that that is illegal because it is and it's cruel and it's heartless and all of those things to be clear i'm not i'm not a fan of uh deporting children to other countries but it, the fact that that's where they draw the line as opposed to like bombing cities or like doing you know terrorist bombings or whatever it's it's interesting that that's where you know that to do to do a classic what aboutery like that's that's kind of how it works right that but that is how it works like i think in in the same way as like in new zealand for example if you if you compare international law to do a okay sorry this is my i'm gonna do a rant carl sorry this is my this is my rant you earned one you've earned one philip Thank you. All right. I'm going to do my rant. Sorry, 
if you've been listening for 199 episodes and you haven't heard me rant about this, you're about to suffer immensely for about two minutes. Okay, to compare international law to New Zealand law, imagine uh, the way, you know how New Zealand media talks about the disproportionate number of Maori people who are uh, convicted of offences. The reason for that is disproportionate policing of different neighbourhoods, right? Because police aren't strolling the streets of Epsom checking if rich kids have... Uh, ketamine in their pockets for example but they are in south auckland checking if people are like drinking beers on the streets so that seems like a very reasonable thing to say but if you compare that to international law it's not the same the subordinates of the powerful are different depending on how imperialism you know is working on the day so the the ideology behind these different kind of systems of power are entirely different so it, I think it's very telling that like Vladimir Putin could be even, you know, given an arrest warrant. That is that is wild. That's wild to me. That's that's like a huge a huge call by the ICC. When as the leader of a major country, he's not even from Africa. Like I thought, the rule was the only the only people who are allowed to be indicted by the International Criminal Court are African. I thought that was the that was the anti African court. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right, it's pretty racist to be honest. To what? What did Putin do to be the first non-Africa? Anyway, sorry. Um, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. it was a court only for African warlords. I thought it was. Who, yeah, I thought it was an anti-African. Who anti- were being armed by you know the West, by the way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah exactly. To to extract resources for cheap from Africa. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a anyway. Anyway, they've they've obviously they've made a swing and a miss on this one but we'll see we'll see how it plays out but it's 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 interesting though right that that's how it anyway the comparison i was trying to make between international and local law is that if you if you notice that disproportionately a certain type of law impacts a certain type of person it doesn't mean that they're acting in a different way it means that they're being treated in a different way right so it's like it's pretty basic shit but i guarantee that there's zero media in New Zealand will will report about this in a way that has any level of comparison. So that's what I mean when I shit talk about what about is like that's how law works. That's how systems of power work. That's how sociology works. Like you have to compare the way that different people are treated. That's just common sense. It's it's, it's embarrassing to like not do that. And this like historically ties into this type of stuff that Marx talked about before. I know this seems like a a weird kind of hook, but this this is the exact kind of like uh comparison to different types of systems of power and like design kind of ideologies that marx talked about in a previous podcast that we've 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 spoken about this exact kind of thing before right mark am i deranged is that right i don't think you're deranged you're you're at risk of being accused of 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 putin apologia (laughs) i think what what really struck me there i was just thinking um you know, just like, thankfully, of course, all of us in New Zealand and Australia and Canada, we've never had any, any, any stolen generation, any, any children being kidnapped or, you know, nothing like that's ever happened in our countries. When you said Marx, I thought you were talking about Karl Marx. He's still good, Marx. He's still contemporary. He's still... <laughs> this Canada is a weird hook. So we're going back to Marxism <laughs> once again. I'm glad um, I wasn't the only one. I was like an hour and a half through and we've finally pivoted to Marx. 
We I could just talk turn about to Marx if page you want. twenty of Das Kapital Volume Two. This is a reading group now. Um, that's why we're going on hiatus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting things, you know, we're talking about comparatively, but historically, comparatively, even with Putin, um, go back to the nineties, um, or even go back a, a decade or so ago to Chechnya, where you know there was this invasion or whatever by by Russia, and then the UK sold them like five hundred million dollars worth more arms <laughs> you know and there was no icc case brought and it's because at the time Putin was aligned and, and russia was aligned with western hegemony um in some very specific ways and now he isn't and if you can do that for one world leader i mean the same in iraq right saddam initially was aligned with u.s interests oops then he wasn't this is Something that happens again and again, and you're right, Philip. This the the historical analysis, the the context is never discussed. Um, and I think this is probably one of the more tangible risks that Branca was turn, talking about in regards to that that splitting um, of viewpoints. Fortunately, we have no international relations community or discourse in New Zealand, so it can't become a full culture war thing. It's just people yelling at each other. Um, I, I don't think an election can be decided by this unless things go very much more south than they have. But, you know, Russian disinfo and and being accused of Putin apologia for saying, yeah, but what about history, um, is something that currently happens. Um, in the New Zealand context. And it's it's completely um, adopted from US liberal uh, culture, political culture, because there's a cultural hegemony as much as there is um, a political one. Yeah, I just want to add one thing before I sign off. I just find that people in the West, even, you know, the left and liberals in the West, um, they still fail to even consider critical counter narratives uh, on the Western discourse about history and geopolitics. Like, just this narrative has had a really horrific history of justifying all sorts of things, including, you know, war, racial hierarchy, um, ongoing exploitation of resources um, and labor from the global south, slavery, for goodness sake. So this is when the source of information has such a checkered history. I, I just urge people to just consider, you know, you may reject it, but don't just reject it as everything that doesn't align with my worldview is put in apologia. Just consider it seriously, uh, that there are different ways at looking at uh, geopolitics and uh, seriously consider the merit of it based on the facts that they're saying and the evidence that they're providing. And this is I, what I want to urge um, listeners. And I, I mean, one of 200 listeners, <laughs> yeah, they are uh, exposed to a lot of these counter narratives and, um, but many of their friends might not be. And, you know, you, you should urge them to do that. Thank you. I just wanted to add one thing, um, just on that kind of talking about um um, I guess systems that are in place and these kind of structures and how um, you know um, there's a huge debate about overdeterminism in history, but there is a, a real um, a real sense that I get, and maybe this is kind of a minority view on on what's happening between these so-called great powers. That there's there's like layers of it, 
and so there's a there's this sort of antagonistic kind of military layer but then there's this sort of deeper layer and i think some of the contradictions around this actually are probably playing into some of the liberal attitudes here that like china and russia and the united states all have a massive common interest in perpetuating the ongoing use of oil and petrochemicals as like the foundation of of the economy the global economy and regional economies of extraction uh, and power systems of, of political and economic power and corporate and sort of fascist or sort of quasi kind of state controlled kind of fiefdoms and, and all of the different forms that that takes around the world but there's a sort of this common element of the sort of legible way of kind of laundering the the material resource um, you know that um, Walmart and in our local context here, um, the warehouse sells this cheap plastic crap. And that cheap plastic crap comes from these kind of multinational American corporates, um, probably um, product designers and, and places like the Philippines and Indonesia working in like kind of 3D sketch tools or whatever, smashing these little things together, drop shippers all around the region sort of taking their cut. But then at the core of it, you've got this kind of like China basically buying Russian oil um, and you've got the Saudi oil system that is feeding into the American tech economy as well. Um, it's an interconnected system and there's a there's a deep layer. I think um, this is a deep layer of common interest, which transcends some of this military stuff because the military stuff also relies on it. Like you can't keep a giant modern military going without basically being one of the largest polluting organizations in, in human history. Um, and that's kind of true, true of all of them. And so there's a sort of the way that these antagonisms play out, um, I think actually actually feeds into perpetuating that um, on a deeper level. That's probably a little bit too galaxy brain, but that's kind of the way I look at it. I just find it really difficult to separate some of these things because I think at the core of, of the militarism, it's just so so deeply cynical and and it's almost like a, a rejection of human values of humanity and of our kind of shared responsibility for the the planet and the biosphere it's just like we we choose to to arm um, ourselves we choose to export arms all over the world to just like destroy shit fuck shit up um, and for what just for profit basically like it's sickening no totally that's sorry i that was a very clumsy uh, pass that I'd given you before, but I feel like you closed the circle very well. Good job, Mark. That's the no. That's the exact kind of thing that I was that I was thinking about when I I said I feel like this the circles back right to the kind of uh, the neoliberal turn in the eighties that comes back to workers' rights and it comes back to the way that we treat the the biosphere, as you say, um, and environmental rights and climate activism and all those things changed the way that we kind of react to the world i suppose it it sounds maybe too like hippie or spiritual but i feel like the way that we kind of uh interact with the world around us has has fundamentally changed in a in a way that's quite uncomfortable to i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm too old i'm in my 30s now i'm allowed to i'm allowed to sound like a like an old man but it, it feels like the when I was when I was younger, I felt like there was at least like an understanding that the natural world had its own kind of value in in and of itself in a kind of Kantian sense. But as as time's gone on, I feel like there's a like a utilitarian understanding of like, well, 
what are you getting out of this? Which is kind of, I don't know, embarrassing. It feels like hollow in a philosophical kind of way. And that, I think that I think that interacts with with workers' rights in a not an indirect, but like honestly, a direct way. Like this is this is why people have to fucking like protest for their right. Like teachers on the streets protesting for quite fundamental kind of just rights to do do their shit like externalities you know capital e externalities are a thing because the government fucking refuses to value what isn't on balance sheets right which is what you know mark and kyle talk about this all the time but i think it's extremely extremely important and kind of obvious that there's there's value to society that isn't represented at the bottom of your kind of credit and debt report or whatever and like justine talked about this when we were talking about nurses and all of these like we've we've talked about you know every every protest every strike it's you know you know why that's happening it's because the union's not getting what they fucking deserve like it's not that complicated it's very easy and every time people uh, especially like pundits complain that they're not gonna get given what they're, they're owed the reason that is is because they're not they're not going to get given what they're owed, and the people you should be talking to is the government. It's not the fucking workers. That's the that's the people that are uh, that's the people who like you need to be talking to. You need to be complaining to the government. You don't need to be complaining to fucking like teachers. It's not their fault. Yeah, anyway. Bronco, if you want to um, wrap us there, and I'll, I'll wrap the whole thing. Well, it's it's a shame to some extent that we're going on hiatus because I think that right now, uh, beyond all the stuff that's happening in New Zealand domestically, uh, there's a very very worrying and dangerous thing going on in the world where for a variety of reasons uh you know the 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 globe is coming closer and closer to some sort of really terrible conflict i mean we're watching it sort of and we're watching it with trepidation in ukraine between the us and russia but um in the background of all this is is this um uh slow moving confrontation between the us and china which uh i want to stress once again that would be not only catastrophic for the world, but very specifically for New Zealand. China is our largest trading partner. Um, and I will also remind people once again that it has never been a good uh, thing in New Zealand history. It's never been good for Kiwis getting caught in some sort of inter-imperial rivalry. That has historically been disastrous for us. And part of the problem, part of the reason that, that we are uh, at the moment finding it difficult to avoid this outcome is because I think there is a real lack of debate in New Zealand politics and society about this stuff. We've touched on it in multiple episodes. We've, we've talked about it a little bit today, but uh, there is basically considered no alternative to sort of what we typically hear in the news. Um, you know, this very hawkish viewpoint that war uh, with, with China is sort of inevitable. And that is just not true. There is no reason that we have to fall into another civilizational conflict um, that 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 would you know uh, send the global economy, uh, let alone you know any efforts to actually challenge and 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 solve these uh, vast problems uh, uh, and the real crises facing humanity like climate change that would set them back you know by 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 decades. So um, it's a shame that we're going to be gone uh, uh for some time while you know uh, these events continue to, to unfold because i think there re- needs to be more debate and i think there's a real fear of having that debate because there's been such a 
ferocious and I would say manipulative public discourse in the West that um, attempts to shut down any sort of debate about this, to shut down alternative viewpoints, to intimidate people into keeping their mouth shut, um, to, to intimidate them into, into um, not questioning things that we're told again and again that may not even be necessarily all that uh, true or at least, you know, maybe maybe misleading. And, uh, you know, it's very similar to, to, to uh, what happened after September 11, except the stakes here. I mean, that that period was disastrous for the world too. It was disastrous for the Middle East in particular, but um, uh, uh, the stakes here are even bigger than that because, you know, you're talking about potential world war in the nuclear age, which, um, which, which, you know, uh, would lead to some pretty unspeakable horrors. And New Zealand would not be immune to that, um, even if we like to think that we're in a distant corner of the world, far away from everything. Um, we rely uh, on a functioning global system. We rely on on trade. We rely on on other countries producing things from, from medicine and, and machinery so that we can actually have, you know, modern society in this country and it is starting to me that the, the lack of conversation there is about this about the jeopardy that that i think um uh, uh you know not just western policy but but even new zealand policy is potentially putting that in um so i think uh you know the world's going to be here in however many months that we're going to take uh to, to to have a break um and we'll continue to talk about this but in the meantime you know you know try and consume as much information as you can look at alternative media you look at look at stuff that, that even you disagree with you can learn about things um by reading from a variety of different sources um even stuff that you know you don't necessarily sign up to every single thing you the thing they thing they say um uh, i think it's really important to start questioning stuff and to, to have conversations with people again, in your lives, even if they're kind of uncomfortable, um, because this stuff is just not happening in the public. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with what is going on in, in terms of New Zealand foreign policy, in terms of US foreign policy, but people feel kind of um, cowed into, into not saying anything right now. So, um, you know, hopefully we're back and, and we'll continue to, to raise some of these issues. But in the meantime, um, you know, it's, it's your, it's, uh, your job to be the one of 200 in your own life, uh, you know, be the, uh, be, be the one of 200 people that, that raise some of these issues uh, uh, in New Zealand's very um, uh, tiny uh, and narrow political discourse. The, the meaning of our podcast title finally revealed. <laughs> it was you all along, the, the listener. Thank you so much for everyone uh, who's, who's joined me um, in the co-host seat today uh, thanks so much for listening to everyone who's joined us over this time for a while we will not be having the weekly current events uh, that's the main thing that's going on hiatus uh, we still hope to have a bunch of articles up we've got some people who are writing for us pretty frequently shout out to Elliot who has been just sending through a, a huge amount of articles for us um, from left perspectives uh, a range of other people are, are hoping to get on board in there as well uh, and we'll try and get up interviews and more specific uh, episodes on a, an irregular basis uh, as we can put those together. So hopefully you manage to get some international relations stuff shoved in there as well. While we're on hiatus, I'll be pausing donations on our Patreon, uh, but you can sign up there to kind of check what's happening in the meantime or, or follow us on Twitter. Um, I think keep this on your on your podcast app uh, to make sure you're there when we return uh, and to catch those uh, one-off interviews uh, that we'll be producing over the next 
couple of months. If you want to help out um, in the meantime, while we're not taking donations, uh, reach out to me um, or Branco or Philip or anyone that you've heard on this cast and ask. Um, we are we are very happy to help people to produce more stuff. Uh, I think that's one of the things I'd hope to see, have seen more of over the last few years, more people doing this stuff. I do not want One of 200 to be the only group in this space. Uh, we can't cover everything for one thing. We do not have the resource, uh, but we also don't encompass all the views in this space. Uh, there are people on the left who disagree with some of our takes. I want them to be creating stuff. We need a rich and widespread civic community uh, so that when one of us gets cancelled, and somehow we've managed to avoid that, there are several others there uh, to continue holding the torch. Hopefully we see some move in the electoral space and the establishment media space uh, to a more significant degree coming into the election. But in the meantime, uh, you can follow us on social media. We'll all still be on Twitter. Um, Branco is still uh, doing journalism. Uh, that's that's his real job, um, and so you can you can catch his takes over there as well at, at Jacobin and wherever else uh, Danes to publish his work. Um, it's been incredibly exciting to have so many fantastic guests over the last few years, um, and to be able to put those conversations and those viewpoints front and center, um, and with the nuance that our current media environment often doesn't allow. Philip has just asked me. Uh, to add a final thought, thought wrap up though so we're going to do that right now well what can i say i'm just so so charming and personable that everyone should care about what i think but no i i just feel like it's um it's a valuable time to try to take stock of where we are politically it's i think it's interesting that like the place that we're in is we've almost kind of gone full circle because when we first made this uh this political this decision to make this like media political podcast the one of the reasons that we did that is that we felt like labor and national was so boring that there was like basically nothing going on politically so we've kind of come full circle right like things have gone apart and come back together again it's not not the most exciting thing in the world but it's become it's kind of an ouroboros of political uh political economy <laughs> in the most boring most boring way you can possibly imagine but i just yeah i don't know i want to i want to hear people's people's takes because i feel like we've been as you say absolutely privileged to have like some of those interesting people in the left of new zealand like involved with this project and um, i feel absolutely like the luckiest the luckiest human that we've managed to create the kind of uh cadence and the, the balance that we've you know, managed to create, curate, curate, I want to say, rather than cre create, uh, over this, this period. So, uh, Branco, obviously your like trajectory has changed over the last five years, but I'd love to hear your kind of takes of what you think is, I don't know, evolved over this, over this period. Um, I think, uh, more and more, I, I see people frustrated with the political consensus in this country. Um, and I think across the Western world that we are a part of. Um, and I think there is a growing hunger, um, even among people who, you know, otherwise would not have, uh, who have been very happy with the status quo, very happy to not question things. I think there is a real hunger for some sort of alternative. I think people are realizing 
the way things are right now is not really working. It hasn't been working for a while. Um, uh, part of that, a, a lot of it, in fact, I think it's to do with with conditions. Um, you know, just people's uh, things are becoming harder. I mean, you know, going to the supermarket uh, is a reminder every single time of, of uh, how increasingly difficult life is for for working people. But I think also it is the fact that 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 you know, um, again, this podcast is just one <laughs> one of two hundred uh, things. It's it's one of uh, a number of of, of uh, projects that that uh, are aimed at kind of injecting an alternative. Um, vision uh, uh, into this into this conversation, um, and I think those efforts uh, have played a role. And so, um, you know, I think it's not going nearly as far as I'd, I'd like. Um, th- there's uh, talk right now. Chris Hopkins might introduce a, a new tax to pay for some of the uh, Gabrielle uh, fallout. Um, we'll see if that actually happens. But you know, unfortunately, so far it, it still is. You know, I think we're in this austerity mindset. In this country, where uh, we're still stuck in a straitjacket of, you know, on the one hand, we have this <laughs> crumbling infrastructure. Uh, on the other hand, we can't tax anyone because we're afraid of doing it. On the other hand, we can't go into debt, so we just have to sort of uh, nibble around the edges and nickel and dime ourselves, um, and 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 you know, do as Paul said, and, and sort of cut out uh, climate um, initiatives so we can pay for uh, the rebuild from our lack of uh, doing anything about climate. Um, so. So much more to go, um, but there, there are encouraging indications um, uh, that things are changing. And, and you know, I think it's uh, blind optimism is is uh, not necessarily a, a very useful um, uh, 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 impulse, but neither is just sort of reflexive cynicism and pessimism. And I think there are things to be optimistic about, even if things are not moving as quickly as, as, as we want. And I think... Um, you know, you look at some of the 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 way that young people are getting involved around around the world. I think that's a really great thing. Um, I, I think that that gives me a lot of hope. And I think uh, you know, being hopeful is a is a political act sometimes, um, especially in an era like this. So let's uh, let's keep that going um, in the you know time that we're away. Keep the hope alive. Um, let that be the fuel that 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 makes you uh, get involved and, and step up whatever efforts you're doing. And um, you know we're gonna we're gonna win. It's just gonna take a lot of work and it's gonna be uh, peppered with with defeats here and there. But you know we're playing the long game here. Mark, do you want to give us a little wrap up and maybe do a mini teaser for the other project that we're working on? Uh, oh yeah, okay. Um, there's just so much to think about. But yeah, firstly, I just want to echo everyone and just um, thanking especially the the original three of you have put so much time and effort and, um, you know, actually like taking active time out of your weekends um, to focus on pu- on publishing stuff, you know, and it's been difficult. Like sometimes just people can't make it and just sustaining that, um, that momentum, um, you know, without backing of like um, funding and like large um, media structures and resources behind it but just because you believe in it I mean I think that's just fantastic to see that and that's you know just um, that's the kind of thing that I think also feeds into giving me hope um, so um, you know just and um, I've learned so much from listening to all the different perspectives um, on all the different topics um, that have been covered over the last few years so that's that's great I don't have a huge amount to add here without sort of at risk of like going onto a whole new podcast. I think what's at top of mind for me is it's really similar to what 
Bronco just talked about, um, probably fueled by a mixture of spite and hope, I would say, for me. And um, I'm really optimistic as well, but um, I do think the challenges are just so massive. And I think like really two points I want to kind of touch on before I sign off. Um, one is the sort of infrastructure question. Um, that's kind of constantly coming back to that in my own thinking, because I feel like um, we talk a lot about crisis and, you know, there was a whole rash of kind of scholarship and thinking around neoliberalism about 10 to 15 years ago about this idea of, of crisis being like a deliberate kind of thing. And we saw that with you know, the financial situation in New York in 2008. Um, but what we're seeing now is a crisis in that like the society can't function. Basic infrastructure, basic needs are not being met. And it's that classic sort of core and periphery thing. Like this has been happening basically right since the 1980s, since these policies were first brought in, but it's it's, it's spreading. Um, and you know, we have these great liberal capitalist narratives of people being raised out of poverty. Uh, if you actually look at the statistics, it's all based on lies. Um, and so there's a really, really strong, really kind of um, obvious body of evidence um, that I think actually reinforces a lot of the stuff we're saying. But yeah, it's like it's an emotive thing. It's not just about showing people with facts and and data it's actually snapping people out of this idea that like um capitalism is succeeding that capitalism is the only way to operate um but i i do um the sort of the other point i wanted to kind of mention there was just around the sort of political gridlock and clusterfuck which i sort of believe kind of is all interconnected there and that um the um the kind of missing missing link um and i think a few of a few of you have touched on this today is that community um, and really this idea that New Zealand politics is so boring and inane, partly because so many people across the spectrum are kind of leaning into like letting politics, letting politicians, letting media lead the conversation too much or kind of putting too much faith and perspective in like um, this will fix things. Um, and I think what really we should kind of acknowledge like media and um and politics, they're kind of the trailing indicators. Um, I'm not going to say they're downstream because that has that kind of has an awful history, but they're sort of that they you know they trail where the electorate's at, um, and they kind of they adapt to conditions. And so to reinforce the points about what we can do, it is really organising, it's getting together and understanding how power um, is kind of central to any analysis of of what's going on. Um, and just kind of keeping that as a grounded perspective. And I think, you know, there is um, there's so much good work being done. And we just really, um, I guess, what where I see myself fitting into this, and I guess this kind of leads into what you wanted me to touch on, Kyle, is um, really um, interesting to see how many left organizations and activist groups and unions are actually doing fantastic stuff in Aotearoa at the moment. Um, and when you put it all together, you can really get a sense of oh, this thing. Things are happening. Um, people are working together. Um, and so, what what we are looking to do um, in the next few weeks is actually start to to highlight that um, and focus on on the website. But really, um, trying to gather data from all of these sources and package up the press releases and um, and articles that people are putting together within these specific organisations. Um, and maybe um, in future across the board with more like opinion based stuff, but really starting from like like work that people are doing and try to try to showcase that and try to 
share that more and try to have um, have some publications and systems and um, tools in place that we can we can all share um, and we can go and look at every day and say like, hey, this is all the stuff that's happening in our communities. Um, this is stuff that I might be able to get involved in. Um, and so we're going to, um, I'll say watch this space because we're going to shift, um, at least Kyle, Kyle and I have been working on this a little bit recently um, and we'll hopefully have an announcement for you soon um, for those of you who want to get on board more quickly and kind of take a peek at. Um, but we've we've actually been aggregating and scraping a whole bunch of, of this content already and looking at all the stuff that's going on across the left. And it creates a very different picture to what you see on, say, the um, even like the homepage of RNZ, which might be a good kind of touch point for like where is the public discourse. Then there's this other public discourse on the left. Um, we just want to put it together and kind of share it. And so that's, um, I guess that's one little one little piece of the bigger puzzle. Justine, your final thoughts? No, I just want to thank, um, yeah, the original uh, trio who started One of 200. I mean, I think it's an amazing thing to keep um, a project like this going, um, you know, by the skin of your teeth uh, with very, with no resources, as is the case with many um, projects in the progressive left, socialist, whatever you want to call yourself space, um, you know. Uh, so, like, to have this resource available to give people this platform uh, you know, it, it's really, it's really like an achievement and you should, you know, be proud of yourselves and you've done so much work. Um, Kyle and you especially, I know you, all the admin work, we mustn't ever forget about the amount of admin, um, that mahi that often goes, you know, invisibilized and forgotten. It's, it's really important and um, I'm particularly bad at it. So I just want to shout out, <laughs> shout out um, to the admin uh, work that you've been doing. Um, yeah, and I just can't wait. I, I'm excited to see what you do in the space. I'm excited about the new projects. Um, the writing has been really good. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of like, just having that there, just as like a kind of even, you know, and I think people are like, you know, people are receptive and engaging and that's awesome. But even if no one was, it's worthwhile. Um, just as like a testament, like a written record of um of that alternative that we're talking about so yeah just cheers guys comrades and um yeah i've no doubt we'll be in the same room together soon um but also rest up eh and paul final words yeah um just to i guess to echo um a lot of other people's gratitude um towards you guys for um sustaining this project and like i feel like it's really uh well integrated with you know the movement more broadly and like you i know that you put a lot of focus into um talking with people that are directly involved in individual campaigns or you know politics or um the you know the union movement or whatever it might be but it's really grounded in that which i really appreciate and i guess like to tie that in with the the broader kind of you know uh wrap up political perspectives that um philip challenged us all to uh provide just now so like i guess following on from what bronco was saying we've talked a lot about like the material conditions right and um i think that's really that's really important you know we've had massive like global events over the last couple of years that have like punctuated the kind of neoliberal consensus and challenged it and shaken it somewhat obviously it has its ways of surviving but you know the things that activism um can do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, i think is, is really important um and you know one thing that i really appreciate about the podcast and, and Brancoso is in particular agitating on this is for people to get involved in campaigns while there's a one of 200 hiatus to get involved uh, in those things as well. Um, 
and and their own communities and one uh just i guess as a real practical shout out one thing that's just popped up relates to i think what mark was talking about before around the auckland um, austerity budget it may not have been you mark maybe someone else but um there's a new campaign called better budget auckland which is resisting the austerity budget um so it's betterbudgetauckland.co.nz they've got a really good guide and alternative budget to um, submit uh, and put pressure on uh, the councillors. Um, unfortunately, most of those councillors seem pretty determined to kind of roll over and accept austerity, um, which I think is pretty disgraceful. But that's just one example of how you can, um, yeah, get involved in something like that and, and these kind of politics and these issues that we talk about um, on the cast. But once again, thanks so much um, for you guys. And like, you know, like Justine was saying, you've had, uh, you've earned a, um, a good rest um but yeah also excited about your ongoing work which i know is is lifelong so thank you yeah there's no there's no real risk rest for anyone on the left um in the current age um, i think anyone who has listened to this cast or has been involved with it knows that um i am looking forward to not having my weekend uh booked out um just for a little while uh i imagine we'll be back pretty soon um so do keep an ear out. I think, you know, we, we could have gone, kept going as the three co-hosts um, throughout this time, but having people on as guests to test our assumptions um, and to connect us to the, the wider community has been key. Um, without those experts um, and touch points, there, were, there would have been no point to what we were doing. It really would have been a bubble. I, I really value what we've been uh, doing here for probably being one of the wider reaching media projects uh, in New Zealand. You know, we're, we're all left wing, uh, but the range of viewpoints is significantly broader um, than, than most of what you get uh, from other media. Uh, and I think that's really telling about what our media environment and what our political environment has become. Uh, thanks once again uh, to our audience, to those of you who have shared uh, what we do, to those of you who have uh, tuned in every week, um, who, have, who have popped along to the website to see our articles um, and who have engaged on the back of this, who have said, hey, man, that does sound like something I should get involved in and gone and joined your union or gone and joined an activist group and turned out at a protest. Uh, because that's that's where the, the pointy end of all the stuff is. Uh, we can talk forever. Like, who gives a shit? Um, if it's not encouraging people and showing people how they can get connected um, and then those connections leading to real-world outcomes, uh, then we may as well be screaming into the abyss. Pod uh, podcasting isn't politics. No, it's not. I mean, there, there are practical changes that occur in specific ways and specific strategic ways um, from us presenting this nuance but it's the actions that people take that make the real difference uh, so keep on doing it uh, keep on fighting uh, and we'll catch you again soon relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is the lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass half full the relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nation
Nation, you hate nationalism. 